Welcome to the Core Women Podcast. My name is Dr. Summer Watson. I'm a doctor of psychology, podcaster, published author, coach, producer of documentary empowerment films, and empowerment seminars. This podcast is a special place for the hearts and souls of women. It is a place where women share their journeys, strength, resiliency, strategy, and passions. Today on the show, I'd like to welcome Margie Crow. We are going to delve into Margie's history of being born into extreme poverty, to sexual assault, her enlistment and career as an officer in the Air Force, to her achievements in education, and where she is today with her work as a professor, her doctoral studies, and her passion in the area of diversity and inclusion. We have so much to talk about, Margie. Welcome, and let's get right into this. Oh, thank you, Summer. Absolutely. So Margie, let's give the listeners a bit of a description of your upbringing. Oh, so that's, you know, an interesting thing that I think at this point in my life, I now start to delve back into the fact that it's probably relevant, where I think when you're kind of going through your childhood and trying to become um, something in this world, you kind of just set it all aside and forget that piece. But at this point in my life, I realize how, how relevant that childhood was in shaping where I am today. So I grew up in rural Michigan, and it was a very, it was a farm community. People, you know, the farmers, you know, some of them had a decent amount of money, but most of us out there were extremely poor. Maybe, you know, your parents worked part-time. You know, my father was always laid off. My mother was at home. You know, there's just never enough money for anything, the bills, the food, but it was normalized, right? Because everybody was kind of living that way. Um, It was during the seventies where there was a lot of layoffs and there just wasn't income. So if something broke in the house, so for example, our bathroom never worked in the winter. And I didn't know that it was atypical growing up that you didn't have running bathrooms like for three or four months. And so, you know, having to wait to bus an hour into, um, into the town for school to use the bathroom or rely on the showers there, um, food insecurity, you know, everything you can think of, but um, didn't know that it was atypical. Um, growing up, if that makes sense. So that was kind of my um, zero through 17 year old environment until I went away to college. And that was kind of by accident too. So um, where I was at, there was a large chemical company. And if you had money, you knew you're going to go to college. And so all of us out in the country that got bust in, we knew that was not an option for us. So we began to be tracked into vocational ed by about seventh, eighth grade. Eighth grade, I think, was my first secretarial courses that I was put in. But again, it was just normalized. This is kind of what happened out there. There was never any talk about college. And actually, I didn't know anything about college at that age. And so I just did my little secretarial classes and thought, well, I'll be a secretary. I'll at least have a job, unlike my mom, who had to stay at home. And then I had an English teacher, and I want to give props to Mr. Federspiel. Um, We are still friends today, 30-something years later. He came into English class one day and had his master's thesis. And I had asked, I said, well, what is that big, you know, it was the um, dot matrix printer, if you remember that summer, right? And and I said, well, what is that? And he said, well, I'm in my master's degree. And I said, I don't know what that means. And he was kind enough to tell me what college was. I didn't even know what college was, that that institution or that system existed. And so all ears, all ears about this college thing, only to find out that it cost money. And it was never going to be something that was going to be obtainable for me. So I continued on in those secretarial courses all the way through my senior year. 
and went to a competition that I was forced to go to <laughs> at the local community college for um, students in vocational ed. And I happened to win a two-year scholarship. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. I can go get a two-year secretarial degree. And then my life is set. You know, I was engaged to my high school boyfriend, um, which my mom probably doesn't know that to this day at 16. So we were planning <laughs> getting married, um, you know, real soon after I graduated at 17 and I was going to be a secretary and he might work in the plant. You know, we didn't know. We were just trying to figure things out. And I went to enroll in the community college that fall for these secretarial courses. And I guess I took a placement test. Again, Summer, I know this sounds really naive, even for 1988, but I absolutely had no idea about these systems, right? These, these higher education systems. My grandparents, three of them had gone through eighth grade. My other grandfather had gone through fourth grade before he had to work the farms. This was not a family legacy of education. And I advanced placed, I think into honors math, honors English and third year French, third year French at this community college. And the, the counselor said, you know, you could use a scholarship for anything. And I said, anything? And she said, anything. And I said, well, I wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so I didn't even know what to do wow. with it. And this began the process of me transitioning away from this secretarial track that I had been tr literally tracked into. It was almost like a European system, right? That we don't even realize existed and probably still exists in some ways here. Right. And into like regular college coursework. And so that just kind of snowballed over the years. So that's a really long explanation about um, how I got to that point. But, you know, I think it speaks to a lot of um, people in rural America, whether regardless of race, of kind of where we were in the system back then and kind of what, what our options were, which were not a lot. Right. Well, I love that you explained about your upbringing, what that looked like for you and how you transitioned through that and what you learned and what you were exposed to eventually that kind of opened up more ideas for you, how you can move around the world. So let's talk about, you were engaged at 16 <laughs> or 17. So let's, let's just touch on that a little bit. It was an escape, you know, I had a very abusive household. Um, and so I think it was the first person that was kind to me. And, you know, I clung to that and it was, a, well, at least I could get out of this house. Um, this person's generous and sweet and I can get out of here as fast as possible, right? So then the abuse would end. And there were some really serious um, incidents that happened back then. And, you know, this, this guy was always rescuing me, right? And in a good way, he was a good person. He was a teenager. Now that I look back, but, you know, he was a very good person in rescuing me or I would have to make a phone call because of the abuse going on in the house, which was extreme lines, you know, trying to call the police and having the phone thrown out in the backfield, the back cornfield. And, you know, if I could get a call out to him, he would race to my rescue. Um, and so that just kind of naturally ended. Um, and I'm sure it was me because as I was going through college and having this world open up to me, you know, the things of my upbringing didn't have as much use. I know it sounds very selfish, but you know, I just, I needed to get out there and I needed to see what else the world had to offer me. And so I did very much leave behind that life. A lot of those people I'm starting to reconnect with now at almost 50 and I feel bad about it, but it was just it was one of those situations where I thought I'm going to, I'm going to die here probably at a very early age from something, you know, whether it's 
it was my father or um, making bad choices or just working myself to death. And I just had to go, I had to go, I had to get well, up and go. There was something in you that said, I need to do something different. It was fortunate that that teacher and fortunate that you recognized that your teacher was carrying something that you wanted to know more about. And that kind of started that conversation about this is what college is. This is an option for you. And here you are probably not even consciously aware of it, that you're trying to break a cycle here. Yes. And so when I look at this, I think, well, why is she apologizing? Because she wasn't aware that she was trying to break a cycle and that was breaking patterns. That was trying to live a life that was a little different, maybe a little healthier, maybe giving yourself more options. So here you are, unbeknownst to you, you're doing all these things and you're not even realizing that, as I said, you're not even realizing that you're doing it, but you did it. So let's speak to that. Let's go fast forward. Let's talk about those early college days. I've read your, read your bio. So let's talk about your struggle to support yourself and then to go to school and maybe some of the things that you confronted during school. And I'll let you tell the listeners about that. Right. So I stayed with the secretarial work because I was allowed to continue to co-op through college. So that was income for me. You know, I had no other way to support myself. So I worked part-time, mostly full-time while going to school full-time and, you know, I worked in an, an environment that was considered corporate and I didn't really understand what that meant. Right. So coming out of this very dysfunctional environment to begin with, with not good guidance, then being, a, I started at this company at 16 years old as a high school co-op with a bunch of men, right? So it was right. a, an organization that was full of men and a 16 year old kid. And I thought myself very grown up back then, right? You know, I have this boyfriend and I think I'm getting married and, but I didn't really know the world and I didn't know how underhanded and manipulative that men could be. Um, and it was quite the education for me. And I have, you know, several children that are much older than that now. And I'm thinking if I had had a daughter, <laughs> um, there's no way I would let her walk into an organization that was mostly men, even today, but especially back then, and l leave her to the mercy of their behaviors. Because to me, I walk in and they're my father's age, right? So right. they're going to act like a grown up in my mind. And that didn't happen. I think the first instance I had, and I'm the reason why this company to this day has a sexual harassment policy. And you know, as naive as I sounded, I came out of the womb with a, you're not my boss attitude. I don't, you know, God gave it to me. Thank goodness. I think it's what helped me persist all this time. But I was, you know, a young secretary working there. And I don't know if you remember summer when people were allowed to have racy calendars up in the, oh, yeah. their offices. Absolutely. So all of these guys in this engineering department had either Playboy calendars up or rigid tool calendar you know, with the half naked girls and they're all graphic artists and things of that nature. And I started noticing contractors would come in and start hitting on me. I was 17, 18, however old I was. And I thought, well, this is very uncomfortable. You know, I have a boyfriend right. and I'm getting married and, and you're like twice my age. And, you know, it's just, and as an abused child, you're just very unsure of how to respond and how to set boundaries and, and all of that. Well, I walked into the, one of the, the um, employees offices one day and I thought, wow, that girl on that calendar looks a lot like me. And then I looked closer and 
realized they had cut and pasted my photo, my professional photo that was up on the wall into that calendar. Oh my Which God. means that people coming in and, and contractors coming in and, and, you know, for these meetings was thinking that I'm the calendar girl, right? So this is like 1988, 1989 at the time. Oh my God. And I flipped out. I flipped out like the country kid that I was. I didn't know how to be that professional and I was a scrapper and I ripped that calendar off the wall. I busted into the department head's office and I think he was probably in a meeting and I'm actually in contact with this gentleman today and I have since apologized for my, <laughs> my behavior because there was probably better ways to handle that, but I lost it and was crying and screaming and you know, the whole thing and God bless him. He was probably in his thirties at the time and very understanding. And he, he did what needed to be done. Whoever he gave it to at the corporate um, headquarters, a couple days later, their first sexual harassment letter came out and all of those calendars had to be removed from offices. And it didn't stop the sexual harassment in the workplace, but at least started putting some boundaries on these guys. And, you know, fast forward four years later, that very man was the one that assaulted me um, and is a felon now. So he's been able to perpetuate this behavior for years and years and years on the few women that worked in that organization. And you know, it, as well as I do in these organizations, and now I've had all this leadership experience, we know who these people are. Absolutely. People know who these people are and they don't fire them. They don't get rid of them. They continue their behavior. Women, especially back then, were afraid to say anything or to... Um, report him. And there really wasn't reporting mechanisms either. Right. So you're right. going to go tell, um, one of the guy bosses who drinks beer with him every weekend. I don't, you right. know, where, where's your recourse. Right. right. So, um, so that was kind of my college experience was I'm trying to live as a typical college student, but then I have this full-time, what I consider a very grown up job and, um, just kind of became very, very chaotic ending with, um, this guy sexually assaulting me, um, at a work party per se. And it was, it was a work party where the work party ended. Um, he was intoxicated. Everybody, I was, you know, had gone to sleep. It was my friend's house, but it was a work sanctioned party. He had broken back into the house and I woke up to this man assaulting me. Oh my goodness. Um, luckily there was a witness. Otherwise I'd be like every other statistic where, what is it like 3% of, um, sexual assault cases, actually get prosecuted, let alone convicted. I mean, it's something very low. Right. And so, yeah, we did go to trial in a small town and that was a very painful experience to have that be such a public, public event. Absolutely. Because each time you have to deal with that event, that is re-traumatizing you, number oh, one. Yeah. Number two, you're in a small town, so people know you, know the perpetrator. Yes. So it's just this really, really, really challenging situation to be in. I can only imagine. Wow. It was, um, it, well, and they didn't remove him from the workplace. So I finally had to get a restraining order against him because he would come in to work every day and then stand in front of my desk and just stare at me. This is after he's been arrested and released. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a really... But it's a small town, you know, small right. town, 1992. Right. Let's not think that we made that much progress by then. And it's front page news. And then the men at work, nobody wants to talk to me because I'm a threat to them somehow because this guy's a victim. You know, it was just, it was a horrendous mess. So it was like six months worth of going through the trial and culminating with him being convicted by an all-male jury because the women were all that they had 
looked at for jury duty had either known him, had seen him in the bar, knew what he's like, and were not going to be good jury members, right? They were going to convict him immediately. Right. So I had an all-male jury, and I thought, oh, this is going to go really bad. And they convicted him, and they convicted him quickly. Um, And he did get a fourth-degree felony for sexual assault, and they did try to plea bargain down to assault and battery. And I said, "Uh uh-uh, I can promise you I'm not the first one, but I'd like to be the last. And if you put assault and battery then what does that mean? That he could have punched somebody out. That's not the same thing. Right. So I just actually checked this year and he is not on the sex offender <laughs> registry list in Michigan anymore. So that's a call I need to make. Wow. Say, I don't care how many years it is because he did assault somebody and he got two years of probation summer. That's all he got. That's two years all? of probation. That's it. Oh. I went into work the next day. He came into work the next day, stood in front of my desk. That is frightening. And there's nobody there to protect me because I'm, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a liability to everybody at this point. Right. So I called over to corporate office to the legal department and they gave me a male attorney. I said, I want to talk to a female. I do not want to talk to any more men. I need a female attorney um, to talk to. And I told her what happened. I said, go pull the court records because it's all public record. People can pull it to today into include all the transcripts, right? So the entire thing is still public record. And I, I said, I need some help here. I need some help. And she had him removed in cuffs within a couple hours because they had a policy that felons couldn't be on the property. But it, it, but it doesn't end there, right? So it's, you know, nobody in my family except for my aunt came to the trial. You know, you're an embarrassment. It just, it's, this is what kind of led me to drop everything. And that's when I enlisted in the Air Force. I dropped out of school before graduation and just said, I, I got to go. This is enough. This town. <laughs> you know, right. This town is enough. Right. You had to move on. You had to get out of there. Right. For your own safety Mm -hmm. and your own peace of mind. So then you move into the military. Yes. My question was going to be what guided you to the military? Well, it was a a sprint into the military. It was a sprint. Yeah. And I will tell you, if I just waited you know, a few more weeks or whatever and graduate from college, um, then I probably could have applied to be an officer at that time. But I don't even know if they were taking non-techs at the time. Probably not. And I just went to the recruiter and I said, give me anything. When's the next, you know, bus out of here? And I went in six weeks later, open general into the Air Force, which is not a bright thing to do. So if anybody listens to this and thinks, I'm going to go to a recruiter and I'm going to go open general, don't ever do that. Have your job picked. That is a wild card that you don't want to do. It worked out for me, but that's not the norm. Okay, so let's take a step back here for a moment, because I do want you to explain the process of getting into the military, enlisting into the military, how you went into the officer uh, and got into an officer billet. Kind of explain that because I do want people to hear that who are listening because this could be an option for some folks. And I also want them to be aware of how you might want to approach this and what that means to go as an open recruit versus, you know, having selected what the Marine Corps calls an MOS or a military occupational specialty. So I would always go in with a guaranteed job. I would not (laughs) do what I was doing, Um, but I just needed to go. And I just thought, well, anything's got to be better than this. Um, So I went to the recruiter, you go through the normal MEPS process of meeting all the qualifications and they give you a date and you go to basic training. I didn't know any, I didn't know people in the military. So I had heard a couple guys had gone in the army, but I didn't really know what that meant. And so I wasn't prepared. 
for basic training and for all the SAS I was bringing with me and obviously the trauma. Right. And basic training was not a pleasant experience for my drill instructors dealing with me. Um, I almost didn't get to get out of enlisted basic training um, because I was pretty defiant at that point. And so, you know, I was difficult. I was very difficult. I was a very difficult <laughs> recruit the whole way through. I think, thank goodness, they saw some potential in me and let me get through. I ended up becoming combat camera. Okay. Um, which was, had just opened to women. It was the first career field that had opened to women in combat in the Air Force at that time. And I, again, didn't know anything about any of this stuff. So I just kind of go through, like, I feel like I do with anything. Well, this is my job, so I'm going to master this, right? So I mastered that and then realized I don't like people telling me what to do. Right. <laughs> so being enlisted was, was a struggle for me because I see things more strategically. And, and so I feel like I'm always analyzing and I don't mean to be an elitist or to be a narcissist in any way, but I always feel like I want to be in positions where I can help, not control, but where I can help and where I can affect change. And so I think I felt very um, constrained being lower enlisted and then getting into a career field that had just opened to women. And one of my best friends to this day was in that class with me and that's where we met and we had very much the same kind of attitude and personality. And then you go out of the frying pan into the fire. So, right. So I leave this, this real male, um, patriarchal dominated civilian world. And I went right into something that was probably equally, um, as constraining, right. With men that are very resentful that they've let women to their career field. And, you know, but I, it was one of these things where I said, well, I went in the military. This is the man's world. This is their world. So I need to play by their rules. I need to suck it up. And, I'm going to find a way around this though. So maybe I could at least be in charge. <laughs> so right. That's how I started looking at commissioning programs. So in the middle of that, I mean, Summer, let's, let's, um, you know, understand that I continue to bring all this dysfunction into my life though, on top of it. Right. So I didn't leave all that baggage from my childhood and that sexual assault behind. Right. I still make bad decisions. So I met a young man in, um, in my tech training school and I married him 13 days later because, wow. you know, this is where my mind is of, well, I need to have a family. I need to have a spouse. I need to still maintain these traditional roles. Right. A safe place. So as luck would have it, um, a couple weeks after I got married, I get pregnant with my first child. And on top of it, you know, then I have this new active duty career and a brand new baby. And he arrived a couple months, a month after I turned 23. So we're not even, you know, talking that I have any kind of age on me at this point. Wow. But I just knew, okay, this is my situation, but I can't let him live like I did. So I pressed hard um, to get into a commissioning program, um, which was not, you know, a simple thing to do to go from enlisted um, to commission, especially back then, um, prior enlisted was still a very negative. It was a negative mark. They didn't really like to have prior enlisted people. And then you also knew that you're going to be limited in rank. You might not get past the rank of major at that time, but I was like, well, at least I'll have some say or control. And somebody brought up tokenism the other day and, you know, is tokenism a good thing? And in my case, I was the only female selected on that board. I can promise you, I was not the most qualified candidate. Um, my transcripts, you know, I had dropped out during the trial. So I had like two F's and I think two B's on my transcripts at that time. Right. So my GPA alone should have made me not eligible to become an officer. 
and I did, you know, have to tell them why that happened. And they, I think they went and pulled the records to make sure that I was telling the truth about this assault. And they picked me, I think, because they had to pick a girl. Um, and I probably should feel bad about that tokenism piece. And I don't at all. I thought, you know what, whatever reason you pick me, I'm in. And I'm going to do the most I can with this opportunity. Um, right. And so I did that. And I'm a pusher summer. So I, I got into ROTC and they said, we well, need to spend two years. And I said, well, I don't want to. I don't need that much time. <laughs> and they said, wow. well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I, there's got to be a waiver because it's not federal law. So I was always that person, you know, in the books, in the weeds. It's not a federal law. I'm going to write the waiver. So sure enough, they let me get out in 15 months. So I got to double up on the ROTC coursework and cruise through really fast. And then they said, well, you have to wait 60 days to come on active duty. I said, I can't. I have a child. I need to come on the next day after I commissioned. Oh my goodness. So, so then I had put in a waiver for that and I came on active duty. You know, I commissioned on the evening of the 16th and I was on active duty the next day. Oh. So and drive into Texas. I'm always a pusher. I'm a pusher. Right. So. Wow. Well, there was a purpose for your pushing. There was a reason for the pushing. And it got you places where you needed to be to expand your your vision for yourself to create a life for your new baby so what ended up happening with the marriage oh well that was fun um as you can imagine that did not turn out well culminating in in two children that are both active duty and doing amazing despite their mother right so we have these <laughs> these discussions um as they're adult men now and one of them is a parent and you know so i have a grandson and you know was, this is kind of where we're kind of doing our own healing as a family of i'm really really sorry and here's the things that i did wrong and i wish i would have known at your age and i'm so proud of you because you're so much smarter than your mother you know, and I, I apologize for whatever burdens and let's talk about those things. So we're having some very difficult conversations the last couple of years now that they're grown men, one's 22 and one's 26. Gotcha. And, you know, letting me take responsibility and they're very generous because they will say, you know, mom, we know you did your best or we know it was hard. And I said, that doesn't excuse my choices though. You know, I mean, you know, I understand I had all this baggage coming into this, but that still doesn't excuse my adult choices when you're responsible you know, I have a responsibility to continue to improve and to continue to be a, you know, try to be a better mother and to continue to evolve. And I also want to show them that piece too for themselves. And so, yeah, we have some very difficult conversations, but that marriage ended, um, no surprise, in violence. So I was the ex executive for the group commander at the time, and she did not like my, my spouse at all at the time. And she was very clear about that. And I said, understood, I know. And, you know, he got in a bunch of legal trouble and then he got arrested with my son, um, you know, shoplifted and, and stole things out of the BX and put it in my son's um, stroller. And it just, and of course I'm the exec for the commander who does the disciplinary action on the base. Right. right. Oh. So it's like, I, and you know, so here I am as this 29 year old, you know, person at the time um, thinking, am I ever going to get myself out of this? I continue to do this. So here I am. I have this fantastic job. Execs are the ones that get promoted below the zone. Typically I have this amazing boss. I have this amazing opportunity and I still have this mess that I keep carrying with me. And this is definitely a manifestation of my childhood. This is a right. manifestation of the boundaries I've not learned to set the unhealthy expectations and hiding 
I think we're really good when we come out of these, these environments and this kind of trauma of hiding people that are bad to you, right? People that are not good to you, but now it's on the blotter. So now I'm doing the vice commander's um, change of command ceremony and everybody's seen the blotter. So what do you think all the group commanders and squadron commanders are asking me? Are you having financial trouble? Like, are you... Right. I'm like, no, I just pick criminals. This is what I do. <laughs> right. Um, and it's embarrassing. So yes, disciplinary hearings in front of my own commander, because she said, I can make this go away. And I said, you absolutely cannot, that we cannot do that because other people wouldn't have that privilege. So I'm going to take the punishment and, you know, because we're overseas and he lost his, um, all of his privileges on base. And that just led to more aggressive behavior cult, you know, finally ending in a, in a violent situation where the commander told him you can either leave on the orders we already had to go back to the States or I'm going to throw you off the Island. That's your choice. And that ended it. And I came back off the plane with the children a couple months later with separation paperwork. And it's not a proud story. And, you know, it's, you know, I think it kind of shows though that we could be doing all these great things, but if we don't resolve all that prior trauma, um, we're just going to keep carrying that with us. Right. And it's going to continue to be, you know, that, that burden. And we're going to continue to make bad decisions that not just affect us, but affect other people in our lives and our organizations. And I, I think back to my troops because I was, some of my troops saw this behavior. Um, There was a day that my ex was dropping me off at work and he was angry and he floored um, the vehicle while I was still holding onto it. And I went flying Oh my goodness. This was in front of one of my tech sergeants, right? I'm a new lieutenant and I'm in, I mean, this is just, yes, I'm, it is a miracle. The Air Force kept me around (laughs) for an entire career because of, of things like that, where, you know, your personal life and, you know, with your husband being military, your personal life can really affect your career. Oh, absolutely. Um, So I became really great at being covert about hiding my personal life. Wow. Yeah. And, Here's the thing, the military, and I hope some of the listeners can take something away from this um, and know that the military is really an opportunity for many. It is an opportunity and they do bend and they do work with folks, but it is a culture. It has its own rules, its own structure, and it makes it difficult because when you come from a certain background, you've had lack of modeling or a specific type of modeling, and then you're trying to transition into this new culture, it can be difficult. It can be difficult for anyone. But then you're imposing trauma, you're imposing your own personality, your own behavior, your own choices into this. And that's where the struggle with the military can come in. Because They do have somewhat of a, at times, a rigid culture construct. And so it sounds like though, Margie, there were a lot of people rooting for you. There are a lot of people to show you some grace. Oh, without a doubt. Yes. And yet you still worked. You have this innate ability to continue to work and forge on and make something for yourself. So even with some of the missteps, even with your own trauma, you made this into a career and that's admirable because many times people wouldn't go the full 20 or full 20 plus or wouldn't make it because of 
some of their own challenges, personal challenges. And so you did. So bravo to you. So let's move ahead a little bit because you did transition, you did retire from the military. And let's talk about that transition and where you are today. Yeah, so I, I transitioned because I have a daughter that has um, severe autism and other disabilities. And it became very, very difficult at the end to be able to, there is no balancing in her world, right? So that world is, is completely new to me, even though she's 11. But at that time, um, we can't do both well, right? So there was no way that I was going to be able to support her at the level she needed to be supported and continue to support a military mission, which is so incredibly demanding. And at that point where I'm becoming a Lieutenant Colonel, you know, needing to go probably back into a command position or something that's going to be really, um, really tasking on my time and potentially, you know, a lot of deployments. And then I have this little itty bitty precious soul that um, is going to rely on me for the rest of her life. So that kind of moved me into transitioning, you know, the last couple of years of my career where I started looking at, okay, well, what should I do? Because this was what I was going to do even after retirement. I thought, well, I'm going to go into Washington and I'm, you know, going to go into either some think tank or Congress and, and kind of work some of these big issues that we need to address. So I said, well, but Lily needs me more. And I've already had several children go through school and I know what that looks like. So what's that going to look like for her? So I went back to school towards the end of my Air Force time um, to become a special education teacher. And it was really intended um, just to be for her, just so I could understand the language of what was going to happen in the IEP meetings. And just okay. so I knew if they weren't doing right by her. So it's just, this is just my attitude towards thing is I have to master whatever thing <laughs> I'm approaching. So I was like, I'm going to master this special ed thing because I have to know because she's profoundly right. impacted. You know, it's not one of those situations where, and not to minimize the learning disability, because I do have children with learning disabilities and things like that, but it's, she's, she's considered intellectually disabled. She's profoundly impacted by her disabilities. That's a whole different community altogether. And you, I'm sure know that from working in different facilities. Yes. So I, um, I did go into teaching for a very short period of time, but kind of what I saw in the classroom is kind of what led me to where I am today, which is okay, I'm a special ed teacher. I'm going to have students with learning disabilities, maybe some ch children on the spectrum, maybe a few other things. And what I found was I had that population, but then every ESL student they didn't know what to do with. And every black student that they thought was a behavior problem, but probably did not qualify for special ed in any way, shape or form. So that was the mix in my classroom. And then, you know, you start as a researcher, as an analyst, start analyzing your environment and saying, look at the intersectionality of this. Why does this look like this? And this is not okay. This right. is not okay. And then the amount of students that were labeled emotionally disabled, and then how many of those students were black, and then how many of them kept getting thrown into juvie, and then how many of my ESL students had huge gaps in their education, but they're not special ed, mm -hmm. right? So they're not special needs in any way, but they've lost five, six years of their education at some point. I had, I think the one student that broke my heart is I'm, he was being pimped out 14 years old at night, right? To pay the, the pay for his mother to pay back the people that had brought them over, oh. you know? And so this chaos is going on in the classroom and I'm thinking, okay, we need to stop the train on this one again. And so, you know, talking to the administrators and that's a whole other nightmare in education where that I'm, you know, I'm not paying attention to my students as I'm analyzing the leaders thinking, how did you get to be a leader in this school? Right. What is it 
that you you hung out long enough and you got a license so now you're the leader in this in this school you're the ap there's no deliberate development of leaders which is contrary to kind of what we should be doing and they right. don't care for the most part about this population yeah and i'd watch them violate the law i would watch them you know violate the rights of these students i would watch them try to manipulate certain families and certain populations and that kind of led me to my doctoral work where I thought, nope, we got to take a look at this and this is not okay. And if I can do nothing else, let's try to tackle this piece of education because the justice piece and the equity piece is so important to me. And I think it's because I saw myself and a lot of these kids, I saw that some of them were, had IEPs because of the level of abuse that they had suffered. Yes. You know, they were born healthy. Yes. And the level of abuse that they'd have for, and I think the worst one for me was a student that was in our school. It was my friend's um, caseload student who had just, it's, it's society is in general is responsible for where he is today, which is in prison probably for the rest of his life. Right. Mm -hmm. So here is a, a child that had been profoundly abused and abused and abused and then labeled ed right and never given the right supports and he was a he was a black student and then what happens when he he doesn't even age out because then i found as a special ed teacher that in virginia in particular because of the the federal um graduation index even though these students can stay in school till they're almost 22 right so right before their 22nd birthday they have to go we're still pushing them out on time because they count against the graduation index mm. And the administrators are very concerned about that. I'm like, but they're allowed to have these extra years for a reason. And it's not happening. So this student was pushed out at 18. He had been in foster care all this time, right? So now he's pushed out and he has no safety net, no family abuse, no you know therapy that he needed over the years. He ended up murdering his two social workers like two months apart that summer after he graduated. Oh my goodness. And everybody wants to turn him into a villain. I'm like, this is our fault. <laughs> this is our fault as a society this is what we've done this is what we've done to these populations and then you know we don't support them and there are some really great teachers but they can't do it all and it's just it's the tragedy of this and it's ongoing and it's ongoing and you know the abuse that these more vulnerable populations also suffer within the schools which happens all the time right. um, which is how I've come to this doctoral research and I you know I got into a bunch of advocacy work for people with intellectual disabilities and then that kind of rolled into I'm on a committee for the state for the Commonwealth of Virginia with their Medicaid to expand and kind of serve not just the intellectually disabled populations but traditionally vulnerable populations right to better serve them and and healthcare and be an advisor so it just keeps snowballing and every time I think well I'm I'm done some new opportunity opens up which has kind of happened um, lately with everything that's going on with race relations and COVID. And so, you know, I don't want to say this in the wrong way that I'm glad for the opportunities, but I'm sad why the opportunities have presented themselves to me. You know, it breaks my heart that this is where we're at, but right. I feel like, well, this is why, you know, and I'm very much a person that believes that God put me here for a reason and I need to do his will and I need to do his work. And, you know, that's probably why I had to go through all the trauma I had to go through because it's not for the faint of heart, right? right. You, cannot, you cannot do this work and delve into these difficult areas and take care of a child like 
you know, Lily this morning. I was glad we didn't have our podcast this morning because it's a four alarm meltdown that the whole world could hear. And, you know, she throws herself into walls and windows and it's, you know, it's, it's a lot. Um, and I feel like I have the supports to do that, but what about people that don't? What about Absolutely. the children that don't? No. So that was a very long explanation about how I've rolled out of that Air Force career into all of this. No, and that's important though. I wanted to hear that, that part of your journey because I think it's so valuable and it's gonna resonate with people who need to hear this, who wanna hear about somebody's journey that went from some very difficult circumstances to sexual assault, to not even knowing about college, but ending up getting into college to a career in the military and how that evolved. And then into, you know, some of the choices that you made and then yet how successful you have been, but you're still working on yourself. I like when you explained, you know, how you're going back and touching on those relationships you have with your, your older children, because people think, oh, we're, we're so self-actualized, but we don't fully actualize until we're gone, right? We're, we want to continue to grow as human beings. And, and that's what you said. You said, here I am. And although, you know, you've given me this grace, you've given me this leeway. Thank you, sons, for doing that. However, I'm still taking responsibility and I'm still here to work on myself. So I think that that just is such a, a valuable lesson and so strong uh, of a takeaway. So thank you for that. And I love the journey and I can appreciate the journey. And it takes absolutely take somebody with a strong, strong backbone to do what you're doing now, to raise flags, to say that we have children that are challenged and we are responsible for helping support these kids and these families. And that is a tough job. I have sat in classrooms. I have sat in IEP committees. That's individual education plan committees. If people that are listening don't know what that is. Um, so and student study teams. And I sat in those and it's a challenge. I've worked with parents and, and identifying in schools and identifying you know, children who are at risk for abuse and neglect. And yet there's kids that are still falling through the cracks and yet there's still resources that are needed. And yet today during quarantine, you know, being a special education teacher and educator, what's happening in homes right now? because those kids are at home 24 seven, parents don't have the resources to help support them yeah. at home. You know some of the cases that are occurring right now in relation to risk and risk factors for those kids. Yes. So we could do a whole other segment on exactly the fact that we sent children from their safe place, which was the school. School was right. a safe place for me, right? Safe School right. was where I got food. School was where I could take a shower. Um, I mean, you know, to be really frank, school is where I got my feminine products back then because there was nothing in my house for my basic needs. And I would literally steal change and then use the machines at school to be able to buy, you know, feminine products. So right. we took these children during COVID and we sent them home to their abusers. We sent them home to people sometimes that are just overwhelmed themselves. And how are you going right. to do severely... Um, disabled child all day long, every day, because I know what that's like, and I have to have a team to help me. Absolutely. It is a lot. And then, you know, you think about Detroit, and you think about the fact these are already such vulnerable populations, and then we just added insult to injury, and then didn't give them support. And there was a student that I posted on the other day, because she's, 
I could read it and you having sat on IEP meetings, I could promise you if you read the article, you would have seen all the red flags. Right. Even though the um, journalist probably didn't even know that she was writing out red flags of how this child's rights have been violated for years. She's incarcerated. Mm -hmm. She has an IEP. She's been incarcerated since February in Detroit um, because she didn't sign on to do her online work. Jeez. Special needs, multiple oh disabilities, has been put through the juvie system. My guess is for aggressive behaviors. This would be my guess, right? right. Um, that are probably a manifestation of her disability, which also is against the law for them to have right. pursued that piece of it. Um, and so now she is literally incarcerated. And if you read the letter that they printed that this girl wrote to her mother, she's not a 15 year old or, you know, mentally. Um, and I'm, it just made me think of my Lily. And I thought, oh, God help me. She's been in there since February and what is happening to her because she didn't, you think I can get my daughter online to do schoolwork? That's not happening. That is not how she learns. And you're going to incarcerate somebody at 15 years old that special needs because she violated her probation. So there's a petition, thank goodness, out there to try and free her. But what are we doing trying to free a 15 year old kid for being incarcerated for not doing this work? I mean, we, I think Summer, we don't even know what we're going to be looking at when we come out of this. Right. For these children and then our children that have already been traumatized so much right um and yes i it, it, it is it keeps it me is awake at night it keeps me awake staggering. At night. It, it really is it's we have so many levels of issues that are being created that are being exacerbated and that are being and yet we can we can do so much right so this is what these podcasts are so important these episodes are are all about is bringing awareness is talking about your journey uh, um, different people's journeys it's about enlightenment so this is a great episode because it's going to resonate with a lot of folks and you're doing some great things out there margie in community so thank you for that thank you for being courageous enough to talk about your journey how you've come through that, how you've grown through that, how you continue to grow. So thank you for that. I do appreciate you and for talking about your journey. So we're going to get to the last question here. Okay. And my last question for you is with all that you've talked about today, if you were to leave the listeners with some words of wisdom, what would they be? Oh boy. I think that if you are in a position of power or if you're in a position to help, um, I think we need to throw away the narrative for a lot of people like me or that grew up like me that we just need to be tougher or we just need a little bit more grit. I think we've come through this world um, knowing, you know, showing that we're, we have grit. We need help, right? We need to be protected. And so I would think that if people are out there in a position to help, take that step, you know, these, these issues are so profound and they're so huge. So maybe just start where you're standing, you know, take a look around you and your own family. If there's somebody in your family that you could help protect a child that you could help protect or provide support to. And if it's not your family, is it in your workplace? You know, look around and see what is happening. There was probably dozens of people that did help me, but there was hundreds that turned a blind eye. And I'm grateful that I did not end up with a drug or alcohol problem or in jail or any of the things that are a typical manifestation of that level of trauma, right? So I think if you are ever in a position to help, please help, even if it's in a small way. And if you are somebody like me that was, that's in it, even right now, please don't lose hope. Um, and you can personally reach out to me. 
right? I will help you find resources. I will do whatever I can because I don't ever want anybody to feel like they have nobody to ask or to share their story. And it's not easy to share these stories somewhere. I mean, this is, you know, as vocal as I am about things, it, it's still a lot to want to put yourself in this vulnerable position to go, this is all the mess that I've had. Um, but my mess might save somebody else. Right. Well, thank you so much, Margie, for joining me on the Core of Women podcast today and for having the courage to share your journey with all of us. Summer, thank you so much for having me today. This was wonderful. And um, I hope we get to do more of this in the future. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Margie Crow, please follow her at LinkedIn. If you need a strategic empowerment coach, contact me. If you want to tell your story of empowerment or how you have reconstructed your life to drive change, send me a video or an email of your story providing permission to use it on my social media platforms. If you want to be featured on my podcast, reach out to me at info at corewomen.com. I want to hear from you and to get to know you. You are now part of the Core Women home. Let's get to know each other. Let's learn from one another. Please follow Core Women on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please let your women friends know about this podcast. If you write about Core Women in your social media posts, please hashtag Core Women. This is all about women. Thank you for taking the time to learn more about Core Women, and please stay tuned for continued growth of the Core Women movement. Let's grow and drive change together.